Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, Churchill Mill. Good morning. Randy put you to sleep, huh? I guess it's good he was talking to God, not you. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. Excited to open the scriptures with you. Uh, if you've got kids and would like them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, you can head out toward the back. They'll show you where to go. Um, we will be starting the book of Daniel today as uh, Pastor Randy was praying. You may have heard that. Uh, you can turn with me, if you would, to uh, Daniel chapter 1, where we'll begin this morning. If you've got one of those blue Bibles in the back, we'll be on page 429 in those Bibles. And uh, this series will take us, uh, Lord willing, uh, up till the summer. So we'll be working our way through the book between now and then. And I uh, hope it'll be a great encouragement to you, because I've worked on it over the last uh, six, nine months or so. It's uh, been a huge help to me. We've got a ton to do today, so we'll just jump right in together. Follow along with me, if you would, in your Bibles, uh, starting in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Ladies, I guess they existed back then, men with brains and bronze. Uh, verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Hard times tend to provoke hard questions. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, locates us in what was certainly a very, very hard time. The year was 605 B.C. Families in Jerusalem woke up on what was supposed to be a day just like any other day, a day like today, where you get up and go about your own business in peace and calm. But that day, they woke up to their city, the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the Babylonians. When an army besieged the city in the ancient world, it means that they cut the inhabitants of the city off from the rest of the world. No people could leave, and no supplies could arrive. The object was to squeeze the city under pressure until the point that they would surrender. Or if not surrender, then they would turn on each other inside the city. Jerusalem, 
that great city of God, where the temple of God and the people of God all could be found, was surrounded by a far more powerful Babylonian army. They had no chance of winning. Do you remember back several months ago what it was like to try to find toilet paper? Imagine that what we had been searching for was not something rather ancillary, but was water. That's what besieging a city would cause. It would cause a squeeze on the things that you need in order to survive. Imagine day after day not knowing what will we eat and what will we drink tomorrow. To be besieged was to be pressed to the very furthest edge of survival, often on the brink of starvation. And then, as if this wasn't difficult enough, things went from bad to worse. Because under this pressure, the king, King Jehoiakim, he surrendered. And that meant the nation of Israel was plunged under Babylonian rule. And as the first indicator of what it would be like to be a conquered nation, King Nebuchadnezzar carted off the best and brightest of the Israeli young men. They took these men, including Daniel and his friends, into the heart of the Babylonian Empire, into Babylon itself. If you let your eyes glance back over verse 2, you'll notice something that's referred to as the land of Shinar. That is an echo back to Genesis chapter 11. Those of you who have read Genesis may remember that God told people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the basic commandment. They were to push Eden out to cover the whole world. But instead, people gathered and they began building a tower of worship to themselves. The place was called Babel. Babel is Shinar. Babylon, you see, was the very seat of wickedness, the epicenter of humanity's refusal to honor and obey the Creator. That's where Daniel was taken. The deportation of the best and brightest was a brilliant military tactic because if you could gut a nation of its best right at their prime, cart them off to some other land and entice them to want to stay, then you could wipe out a whole people. In essence, the attempt and aim here was to make Babylonians out of Jews. Today, we would call this cultural genocide. Its, its aim was to first indoctrinate and then obliterate. That's why Daniel and his friends were given new names. Their names weren't simply easier to pronounce, quite the opposite. No, their new names were all related to Babylonian gods. Christian parents are often concerned about what will happen to their kids when they leave the house and go off to college. But parents, imagine how you'd feel if your child was taken by force and then enrolled in the University of Babylon. The real horror, though, here is not what happened to Daniel, 
No, it's what was said about God. You see, for Nebuchadnezzar to steal sacred objects from the temple and to take them back to Babylon and put them in pagan shrines, this was to declare that the God of the Bible is a loser. That he's nothing. That the Babylonian gods are far more powerful. Today, a lot of us will watch a football game. Imagine in that game there being a God for each team. And what's at stake is not something as petty as who wins the Super Bowl, but something as important as whose God is the real God. That's what the ancient world was like. The fall of Jerusalem brought reproach on Yahweh Himself. Do you see now why I opened with that sentence? Hard times tend to provoke hard questions. Questions like this. If God was telling the truth when He said He was going to build an everlasting kingdom, then how could Jerusalem, the capital of that kingdom, fall to the idol-worshipping Babylonians? If God had dissipated the people in the land of Shinar at the Tower of Babel, How could they reassemble there at the height of their power? If God reigns over every other so-called God, how could those false gods take objects out of the house of the one true God? Maybe He's not God after all. If God loves His own, if He is their hiding place, then how could teenagers get ripped from their families? never to return. We ask similar questions today. If God is really good, and if God is really all-powerful, how could two million plus people, including some of our own, die in a year from a disease none of us had heard of 14 months ago. If God cares, why does the depression remain? Why did your husband leave? Why did you get fired? Why did you have another miscarriage? Why did your dad go AWOL when you were two? Why do false teachers get the most airwaves? Why are you still single? Why did you fail the exam? Why did you come, succumb to that temptation again, even after you asked God for help? As I was preparing for the sermon today, I was thinking earlier in the week, last week, that the best thing to do this morning would be to try to put all of us into Daniel's shoes, in his world, describing what he felt as he entered the city of Jerusalem. But then I realized, I don't need to do that. It's unnecessary because we all walk in our own heartache and pain. There's no need to take you to Babylon. You're already there. This is not our home. To be in exile is to be one that belongs to another place but not there. And if you're a Christian, then you are in exile. The world, you see, was broken in 605 B.C., 
Daniel chapter 1. But the world's also broken in 2021. You might say we've all been expelled from the garden. We all live east of Eden. Cut off from a place where there's no pain, no sin, no disappointment, no dark thoughts you can't seem to escape. Now, by the time the book of Daniel was written, several decades after the events happened in chapter 1, things had gone horrendously. Jerusalem had been invaded twice more. On the third occurrence in 587, the city was literally crushed. Homes were destroyed. Things were burned to the ground, including the temple. And all but the poorest of Jews had been carted off to Babylon. The city where God said, I will dwell with my people, now was a heap of rubble. But make no mistake, all of that happened on God's watch. God didn't take a nap. He didn't go on summer break. He didn't take vacation. He didn't get caught up with something else and it slipped his mind. While the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation at the Jews came at the hands of the Babylonians, They were simply agents of divine judgment. Verse 2 tells us, after all, the Lord gave Babylon victory. Hard times tend to provoke hard questions. Verses 1 and 2 put this like it's so matter of fact, like we all ought to understand that that's how things work. But we don't. Now, to be clear, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all hard things that happen to all people is always to be seen as a direct judgment from God. It's not. And yet, Daniel 1 says that this one was. Israel's persistent rebellion, their breaking covenant with God, despite all that He'd done for them, brought about these consequences. What we read about in the fall of Jerusalem was judgment. It was judgment deserved. Church, we ought not be surprised by the judgment of God upon unholy sinners. And the fact that that verse ruffles our feathers so much tells us a lot more about us than it does Him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Can't cover the whole book this morning. Church, what truths ought we cling to when the God we hear preached in exalting language on Sunday feels like nothing but a massive disappointment on Monday? When King Jesus seems distant and His kingdom that we've heard so much about seems so far away. Does any truth satisfy on those kinds of days? Are there anchors 
that we can put down in the storms of life to keep us from getting a shipwrecked faith? Well, if there are truths like that, then once we've identified those truths, what do we do with them? How do we survive in Babylon? Well, these are some of the books, the, the issues, the book of Daniel raises and addresses. Daniel, you see, was written to comfort, to encourage, to inspire people living in Babylon. And chapter 1 this morning will be just one chapter that gives us one humongous truth, a truth that you can cling to and it will be enough. Listen for it as we continue to read, would you? Starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs. Can you imagine putting that on your resume? To allow himself not to, to be defiled. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the King who assigned you your food and drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then... Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Then at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. They had some weird vegetables there. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. After watching their nation fall to Babylon, Daniel and his friends were ripped from their homes and carted off to the land of Shinar. Quickly upon arriving, they were admitted and their three-year education commenced. New city? Check. New teachers? Check. New curriculum, check. New names, check. New diet, that's going too far. Now, it's not clear precisely why. Actually, if you read this story carefully, you'll notice it doesn't say why. Why did Daniel believe that to eat the king's food would be a compromise that he just couldn't make? Well, all that we know is what verse 8 says. He resolved that he would not defile himself. The narrative doesn't give us a precise reason why to eat the food would be to compromise his holiness, so it's best for us not to speculate. The Bible tells us what we need to know. Therefore, we must not need to know. What is clear, though, is that Daniel resolved. 
Church, Nebuchadnezzar could change Daniel's name, but he couldn't change his heart. He could take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but he couldn't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. He could revise Daniel's educational curriculum, but he could not rattle his biblical convictions. See, Daniel and his friends were far more concerned with holiness than they are with fitting in or diffusing conflict or escaping consequences. That leads to an important question. Where are the Daniels today? This church needs some Daniels. Tempe needs some Daniels. This world needs a lot of Daniels. Young people, many of the moments in life that require resolve will come to you most likely in the next few years of your life. And so I'd ask you, particularly if you're under 25-ish, will you defile yourself? Or will you, with God's help, continually seek the holiness without which no one will see God? The wisdom to know how to live in the world but not be of the world ought to be one of the first prayers you pray every morning. The pressure today to fidget with what the Bible says, trimming a verse here and there, is ever-present. Will you resolve to hold the line of biblical faithfulness, even if it brings about ridicule? The temptation to laugh at things that Jesus died to redeem us from, to have sex long before making a lifelong commitment. To capitulate on doctrines that are hard and instead build up a false gospel of self. These temptations are everywhere. Young people, will you resolve anything at all? This coming week, you will be pressed to treat your Christianity as a preference. But Christianity is not a preference. It's a conviction. If you invite me over for dinner this week, and I'm sitting at your table, we're having a great conversation, and I notice out of the corner of my eye, you open a can of spinach. I will eat it. Not happily, but I will eat it. But if you open a can of peas, then I will tell you, you've gone too far. You see, I'm allergic to peas. The last time I had peas, my throat swelled shut and I nearly died. I have a conviction against peas. I have a preference against spinach. Young people, you are tempted and even told to treat your faith like it's spinach. It's not. It's peas. Now, understand that living with resolve means being a person of conviction. Not 
conviction about literally everything as though everything hangs in the balance on what you do with that every little tiny moment. That's just not true. So don't make the mistake of thinking that this morning you need to resolve that every situation this week you will come in like a wrecking ball. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel apparently walked to Babylon. Daniel apparently accepted a new name. Daniel agreed to attend an education that could not have been more antithetical to everything he believed. You see, Babylon at this time was literally built on concepts of polytheism and concepts of dark magic. He agreed to become an expert in those topics. But he had the wisdom to know that this point required a line he couldn't cross. He had the wisdom to know when to resolve, when to take a stand that might be costly. And notice, brothers and sisters, how he did so. I find this to be so instructive. Daniel resolved not to condemn everyone around him, not to ridicule and belittle them, not to tell them that they must do what he does. No, he resolved and then in that resolution, he gave the kindness and deference of an appeal, of a question. And when he faced resistance, he came up with a practical strategy through which he could avoid what would be unholy, but not somehow presuming that on other people around him who weren't following his God. To be a Daniel isn't an excuse to be obnoxious and arrogant and judgmental. If you're young, I want to ask you, will you be a Daniel? Now, to those in the room who are a little bit older, let's say up above 25, particularly if 25 is in the distance. You will face the temptation to lament what you might call the demise of young people. You might be tempted to start many of your sentences with, I remember when. But that so quickly becomes nothing more than the Pharisee praying in the temple, God, Thank you that I am not like other people. Don't forget in that story that Jesus, Jesus said that one didn't go home justified. Older folk, we are not off the hook. So I don't ask you so much about Daniel. Instead, I want to ask you to consider, where are all the Josiahs? You see, during the most formative years of Daniel's life, his childhood, his preteen years, 
Daniel grew up in Jerusalem under the leadership of King Josiah. After years of decline, Josiah led the nation of Israel back into a great reform. Josiah was finally a king faithful to God, worthy of emulation. And living in Jerusalem as a young boy, Daniel would have recognized and saw as the law was recovered, the Bible was recovered in the temple. The place of worship was cleaned up. And far more importantly, the people of God repented, led by their king. Daniel knew what it was like to live with wisdom and resolve. He knew what courageous conviction in a sea of unfaithfulness looks like because he watched Josiah do it. Perhaps the scarcity of Daniel's today points back to an absence of Josiah's yesterday. May God change that. Friend, if there were ever a church to be a part of, a church full of Daniels, or would-be Daniels, young people longing to know what does it look like to live wise, holy, winsome, courageous, resolved lives. It's this one. If you're over 25, the reason you ought to be in this church is to be a Josiah to a Daniel. We are literally overflowing with would-be Daniels who are simply asking, will you show me what it looks like? Pray we're up to the challenge. Verse 15 indicates that despite a minimal diet, compared with the fine dining of their fellow classmates, Daniel and company fared better. They objectively looked more healthy. In this specific situation, God responded to Daniel's resolve with a special sustaining grace. God gave favor to Daniel because God is faithful. That's not to say that in every circumstance that's what God must do, but here that's what He did do. And that grace He gave them didn't stop merely with Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It went beyond the diet to all of life. Let me show you that. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, so three years, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, 
he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. After three years at the University of Babylon, graduation day finally arrived. It actually be more precise to say uh, oral defense day finally arrived. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar brought them in and their job was in one meeting to demonstrate what they had learned in their entire university experience. Those of you who have ever defended a thesis or a PhD dissertation can feel a little in your stomach something of what Daniel felt. Anything and everything from their three years of training was up for grabs. And they passed with flying colors. And not only that, the people who formed Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet, if you will, these four foreigners outperformed them. That's why verse 19 uses a technical phrase, they stood before the king. That means they faced the test and then they were appointed to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's administration. Now imagine how crazy it would sound in our own day for the most loyal person to our previous president becoming the closest advisor to our new president. That's unthinkable. But that's what happened to these four men. Beloved, the people of God had, have long had to wrestle with the complexities of exile. How do you help a king succeed who conquered your own nation? That's just one of a bazillion questions that Daniel must have wrestled with. We understand today that we too are in exile. The Scripture tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is up there, and yet we're down here. So while we belong there, we live here. And that fact is what creates all the consternation that you and I will face this coming week. Citizenship there, residing here. That's the context in which all the hard questions that flow out of hard times come from. How do we survive in Babylon? while we await our king to bring the heavenly Jerusalem with him? How do we remain faithful to God when we serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court? Daniel no doubt wrestled with that. And Lord willing, for the next several months, we'll wrestle with it too. Now interestingly, what may not be immediately obvious to you, verse 21 tells us that he did so for decades. Not only did Daniel serve in the Babylonian government, 
But years and years and years later, when Babylon fell to the Persians, King Cyrus put him in his government too. Now that means, if you've checked out, tune back in here. That means that if Daniel was deported from his home as a teenager, which he almost certainly was, then he served foreign pagan kings into his 80s. That means his entire adult life was lived in exile. While sad, verse 21 is meant to be the first little note, that first ring of hope in what thus far has been a tragedy. Because if Daniel could remain strong and faithful that long, if decade after decade after decade after decade of exile didn't ruin his faith, if God could sustain him indefinitely, then he can us true. How? Well, church, what we need are not little trinkets for weak faith. What we need are God-sized ideas. Ideas that are big enough and strong enough to hold up the scaffolding of living in Babylon. Are you with me? Daniel chapter 1 gives us one of those ideas. And it's big enough and strong enough for what we need. This chapter tells us that our sovereign God will be gracious to His faithful people, even in exile. That idea, believed, meditated on, chewed on, regurgitated, chewed on again, is enough to be a Daniel. Our God is sovereign. You see that everywhere in this chapter. God does whatever He wants to do. Nobody limits Him. No Nebuchadnezzar takes over His people without Him sending Him. Every other king and every other kingdom will come and go. God and God alone remains on the throne forever. He is above all. And He will be gracious to His faithful people. While we live far from our heavenly home, facing complex circumstances requiring wisdom and attended to by frequent hardship, may we remember that God's sovereignty isn't some abstract, loose, uninvolved principle. It is literally what causes your heart to beat another time. It is the reality you live in every moment of every day. And that sovereignty is harnessed into graciousness toward us. 
We see this in a particular way in this chapter. And as we begin to wrap this up, let me see if I could summarize it for you. It's summarized in a verb. Do you remember what those are? It's summarized in the verb, gave. Maybe you saw it. Interestingly, it comes up three times in this chapter, once in each paragraph, and each time it's the key to unlock what's happening in that paragraph. It's brilliant writing. In chapter 2, it says, in verse 2, it says that the Lord gave his people into judgment. Friends, the Jews got what they deserved. God had told them exactly what would happen if they wouldn't remain faithful to Him. But even though He gave them over to what they deserved, you might say that the judgment of God had a seatbelt on it because He didn't give full fury to all that He could have done. Their punishment wasn't equal to the crime. This is judgment in a seatbelt. How do we know that? Well, because of the next two paragraphs. In verse 9, you'll find that verb again. God gave Daniel favor. How does a schmuck, a foreign nobody, convince someone, I won't sit at the king's table And dine with him. Instead, I'll eat the scraps that nobody wants. How does he convince somebody to do that? At great risk to themselves. Well, it's not Daniel. God gave him favor. Any situation where you face someone in more power than you, expecting you to do something that's compromising to your faith, and you somehow find favor, it's not due to your brilliance, but His grace. And then in the next paragraph, the last one, verse 17, God gave all four men learning and skill. You see the tension here? God gave Israel into exile because they deserved it. And yet, He he put a seatbelt around that judgment by not just slaughtering all of them. And then even in Babylon, in the context of that judgment for their sin, God gave them mercy and grace and hope and power. Reminds me of that great theme, that great prayer, in wrath, remember mercy. That's what God did. That's what He still does. That's what He always does. Now, here's the coolest thing. Beloved, we can be more confident that that's how God does things today than Daniel ever could have been. Because you see, on this side of the cross, we see the evidence in far greater ways. It turns out that God throughout the story of Daniel will give and give and give and give, but 
when we reached the end of Daniel chapter 12, God didn't stop giving. In fact, He was just warming up. This was just the preview. Because in the Gospels, we see the very best gift. The most famous verse in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son. That Son, you see, was exiled from heaven, lived in Babylon, remained faithful to the Father in all things. And yet, even in that faithfulness, he was led to the cross. His exile took him all the way into the grave, where he died a sinner's death. But this time, the seatbelt of judgment was taken all the way off. He bore in his body the full weight of the wrath of God. Judgment without airbags. Wrecked. Pummeled. But no grave can hold that king. Our king got up. He rose again in victory, ensuring that exile is only temporary. Even if it's from teenage years into your 80s, that's but a blip in time. Because this king reigns. And his coming up out of the grave ensures that he will come again. No doubt about it. When? I have no idea. This is why we need the book of Daniel to teach us how to live until the king returns. If you're here this morning and you don't know this, Jesus Christ, in the meantime, I want to encourage you non-Christian to hear the rest of that verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Why? So that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The opportunity to be one who escapes the judgment of God, rescued from His wrath, given credit for the good things you didn't do, forgiven for the bad things you did do, welcomed into a relationship with God that will go on forever. That is what's offered to you in John 3.16. If you've never trusted this Christ today and you believe what I've said about Him, I want to encourage you today right where you are in your own words, even now, to put your faith, your trust, your belief, your confidence, If you're close, but you're not quite there, then in a few minutes we'll dismiss. People will go out and stand in the patio. We'll look awkward to each other. And in that awkwardness, why don't you say to whoever you came with, 
I think I'm a little bit closer, but I'm not quite there. I still got some questions. If, on the other hand, you're hearing me this morning, whether here in the room or online, you're already a follower of Christ, then would you heed this truth? Our sovereign God will be gracious to His faithful people, even in exile. When you face situations this coming week requiring the resolve of Daniel, the way to be faithful in a way you haven't been in the past is not to rely on your own grit. No, it's to rely on the graciousness of God shining upon you in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where the resolve comes from. You see, that king reigns in you. And so the power to do what Daniel did is now yours. Would you rely on him today? Look to him. And he will be gracious to you. Father, we pray that you'd use these words this morning, Daniel chapter 1, for a time like this. for the non-Christian in the room to yield themselves to a king who will only do them good. I pray for the Christians in the room to be awakened to the fact that they live in Babylon. We are so often enticed by the lights and the trinkets of this world. Help us to feel not at home. And then rather than despising the world and hating Babylon, help us to love the people in it that we might show them Christ. Because we are no better. Lord, in the coming week, we ask you that you would give us the resolve of Daniel and that you have given us the resolve of Daniel because you've given us Christ. He did not revile when reviled. He did not shrink when his exile took him even to the cross. Because of this, we are assured of your love and your grace. Raise up in this church a whole host of Josiahs and Daniels. This we pray in Jesus' name.